There we go. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, guess you can be seated. Um, so I'm Kendra Brock. I'll be doing the, the scripture reading for today, um, which comes from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Um, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. And it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns the wise into fools, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, Wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, you cannot discover anything about your future. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, in almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've had the privilege of being a part of many life events, weddings, funerals, baby dedications, and baptizing many people. In the previous church I served in, Vancouver, there was a day when I officiated and participated in three weddings on a busy Saturday summer uh, wedding season. We would uh, also baptize people by the dozens at the beach with the beautiful coastal mountains as a backdrop. They're all important moments that I am always honored to be a part of. There was such a sense of joy and celebration in these events. But out of all these events, I find that funerals often offer the greatest opportunity for impact. It was often moments before an impending death that I found loved ones most authentic and thoughtful about what might be most important in life. Try as we might to escape death. It's hard to escape it at a funeral when you're looking at the casket of a loved one and passing by it and watching their body lowered into the ground or pass into a crematorium. You know, when we think about scenes like a funeral, we're inclined to move on as quickly as possible. You want to escape all the icky feelings that the event might remind us of. But the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that death isn't something that we need to escape from. Especially in light of our union with Christ, death helps us frame our present lives much more meaningfully. Through the book of Ecclesiastes, we are invited to live life in reverse. Live life now in light of our life to come. And today I want to walk through this chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes and consider how these invitations 
that death confronts us with. There's an invitation of death itself. There's an invitation of escape. And there's the ultimate invitation that is suggested here. Invitation of death, invitation of escape, and the ultimate invitation. In verses 1 to 6, Kohelet reflects on the benefits of mourning. It's kind of, it kind of hits you. I heard people going, oh, that's what I heard it read, right? He compares the day of death to the day of uh, birth in verse 1. He compares the house of mourning to the house of feasting in verse 2. And he says that frustration and sadness are actually better than laughter in verse 3. And a wise person in the house of mourning is better than a foolish person in the house of feasting or a house of pleasure in verse 4. What's up with all this? You know, we may initially want to pass over all these references to death. I know when I read passages like this in the Bible, it's kind of like, okay, let's move on through this. They remind me too many of these things I don't want to think about. But Ecclesiastes invites us to pause and consider, what is the invitation that death offers to us? Here, first of all, death and mourning are not references to your own death. They're references to someone else's death and how being in those situations might offer wisdom to us. You know, when we began this series a month ago, we learned that when a monk passed away on, on the monastery grounds, they would often bury them on the monastery ground. And immediately after they were buried, the monks would dig another grave right beside that and leave that grave open so that monks, as they passed from the chapel to the dining hall and back, they would be reminded, seeing that open grave, thinking, I could be next. This practice, known in the Latin phrase, is memento mori. It was a way of hearing this invitation that death is everyone's destiny. It's what Kehelet begins chapter 7 with, saying, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Grieving the loss of a loved one can actually provide much more benefit than the joy and the elation of a new birth. Think about that for a moment. Bereavement, mourning, while more painful at the moment, both offer an opportunity for your own growth in wisdom. See, we're made to believe that everything in this life is what matters the most. Our stuff, our social media, our investment accounts, our, uh, our social media, uh, yeah, and our accolades, all of these are what matter. But, and all these are more important than, the than our character and the, how our souls are doing. We sell our souls away for stuff that doesn't really matter at the end of days. Earlier in the story of Scripture, we find that's what Jacob, uh, Esau does to Jacob. He sells his birthright, a.k.a. his character, his name, his future. He sells it all for what? A bowl of soup. In verse 1, this, it begins with this kind of weird phrase, a good name is better, uh, is, is better than perfume. What does this lead in to this invitation to, of, that death offers? Here, fine perfume or cologne is likened to birth. That's thought to be wonderful and sweet-smelling and enjoyable. But fine perfume doesn't reveal 
the character of the person wearing it. Like an evil person can use fine cologne to smell good, your birth doesn't determine the kind of person that you will become. Only death is the life that... The end of a life offers a much better measurement of a person's character than the beginning of that life. Endings tell us more than beginnings. An obituary tells you more about a person than the birth announcement. But here's something to consider. How differently will you live now if you consciously thought about what people would write? Now. You know, Zach Eswine, who wrote a book, to pack here. The sooner we come to terms with our death, So we must confront the death of this battery pack. I can't run from it. I can't escape it. We are all invited to turn from this invitation that death offers to us. And that's what Kehelet addresses in the following verses. We hear this invitation to escape. In verses 7 to 14, Kehelet offers a series of proverbs that seem kind of disconnected. But set by this reflection on the imitation of death, perhaps they can be seen as the ways that we want to escape facing death. These are ways that we want to manage and keep control of things. They are linked by this false sense of control that only God offers to us. Death is the ultimate loss of control. But these Proverbs highlight how we want to escape our sense of losing control. We attempt to escape by using money and extortion in verse 7 and 8. We've, we attempt to escape by using anger in verse 9, by turning to nostalgia in verse 10, and we even turn to wisdom itself in verses 11 and 12. All these things are forms of escape for us from death. Verses 7 and 8 describe how we escape our present reality by looking at money and power and influence in the form of extortion and bribery. We use these things to define a new reality for ourselves rather than trusting God. Now we may not have, you may say, well I don't have a lot of money to bribe others and extort others. 
But you know what? We can use emotional manipulation. Parents? We can use money or manipulation. When we do that, it's a reflection of our impatience that he talks about in verse 8. When things don't go according to our timeline, we want to escape our responsibility and escape the reality of the way things as they are. So we resort to manipulating things to get what we want. Escape shows up in verse 9 as well. We attempt to control an outcome using not money or manipulation, but in this case, we use our words and our anger. We use anger to bend others to do our will. Kahelet doesn't mince words here. He says that anger sits in the lap of fools. How many of us have been angry before? The more we, anger is like an addictive drug. The more we use it, the more we need it, and the more it owns us. We lose the ability to control anger. Anger owns us, and we begin to move into the territory of fools. In Luke chapter 9, verses 54 to 56, when the Samaritans dismiss Jesus before he even arrives, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, are miffed. They turn to Jesus and, and say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? They're angry. Do we ever feel like James and John? James and John are the trigger-happy disciples looking to use folly to fight what they see as folly. In our day and time, it shows up in using shooting guns to settle personal disputes. It shows up in chasing someone down in traffic because they cut you off. And I probably would say it's the underlying emotion in parking large semi-trucks on border crossings and in capital cities for weeks on end, honking horns. Anger is a way of escaping your inability to cope with things not going the way you expect them to. Lastly, for today, we'll turn to a surprising form of escape in verse 10. That's nostalgia. What does he say there? What, what do they say there? Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. You know, nostalgia shows up when we talk about the good old days. Nostalgia shows up in the statement, remember when? Remember when those people were here with us? Remember when what life was like growing up in my neighborhood, in my hometown? Nostalgia is reflected when we say, did anyone ever tell you the story about? Nostalgia shows up when we say, this is not the blank I know. This is not the neighborhood I know. This is not the city I know. This is not the church I know. This is not the America I know. You see, nostalgia is a way for us to escape the present. Nostalgia plays tricks on us when we remember the good stuff, which is often worth remembering, but we're really not very good at remembering the bad stuff that was happening along the same time. Nostalgia makes us blind to what's good in the present and makes us uh, blind to the evil things in the past. When we say, 
Huh, sigh for the good old days. We inevitably overlook the evils and uncomfortable truths of that time. You know, in the news, there's a lot of talk about this fear of CRT and systemic racism. So people go and ban books, they burn books, and we say things like, America is not racist anymore. But there's this myth of white supremacy in America that needs to be shattered. It's conveyed in these socially acceptable forms of nostalgia. Safe, aka predominantly white neighborhoods that have good schools and have good property values that accelerated the most over these past decades. They all benefit, most of, many of them benefited from racially restrictive covenants and redlining that uh, um, prevented a lot of black folk from getting mortgages approved at, at affordable rates. The lands that propelled America's industrialization were stolen from indigenous people groups. These are uncomfortable truths that we must face. You know, even within WCF, nostalgia can be at work. I hear many stories about how God has worked faithfully in the history of our church, and we should certainly celebrate those and remember those. But it also seems that we haven't been very good at talking about things that are hard. We use formal processes and meetings to force decisions, or we consider walking out the doors of the church to make a statement rather than having a meaningful conversation with someone who might see things differently from you and how we live out our faith in Jesus. And that's why the elders have called this series of congregational conversations for us to build that muscle as a community. Nostalgia creeps in everywhere. When nostalgia is at work, we often fail to ask, why was it better then than it is now? Is God less loving and less powerful now than he was in the past? Is God no longer in control? You know, C.S. Lewis comments on how nostalgia is a very special emotion of longing. It's very bittersweet. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, Oh, it's a, okay, essay. Thank you for the correction. Only children or the emotionally immature think that what they are longing for is what they are actually longing for. Only children or emotionally immature think that what they are longing for is actually what they are longing for. Those who are mature recognize that nostalgia plays a trick on you. It intensifies your emotions. And he goes on to say, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are our good images of what we really, really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not heard, news from a far country that we have not yet visited. Here's what Lewis is saying. Experiencing nostalgia points to a longing for a more beautiful person than you have ever met and a more beautiful place than you've ever been to. What's pulling on your heartstrings in the past is actually a pull 
to a future that you have not yet seen. Remember earlier how I invited you to put a button on the, I, 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 maybe I didn't, <laughs> but how endings tell us more than our beginnings. Nostalgia is actually pulling us towards an ending when we think it's about pulling us to something before. It's pulling us to an ending that we have a chance of knowing when we come to know Jesus. You know, our attempts to distract us from considering death realistically in this life, they're all forms of escape. Whether it's wielding our power through money or manipulation or deluding ourselves to what really is through nostalgia. And even those who escape to wisdom that Kohelet addresses in verses 11 and 12, Kohelet says, even that's limited in its benefit. But we can escape escapism, not just by looking to the end of our lives, but we look to the end of history described in, in the story of Scripture. In Psalm 39, David asks God to help him truly see his end, that his days are numbered, and that his life is fleeting. And he doesn't look to escape this reality, the finality of his life. He runs to the living God, and he recognizes only God holds all things and controls all things, including eternity. That's what we've been reminded of in the songs that we sang this morning. Kohelet, too, invites us to consider what God has done. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. The crookedness here that Kohelet speaks of is not moral crookedness, but it's of situations where things don't go the way that we expect. The road bends and turns. When things go sideways, they can be awkward, they can be jarring, they can be, even be painful. You know, Americans have a preoccupation with comfort. We don't like to be uncomfortable. So much so that I read this morning that the governor of Florida is trying to pass legislation that allows people to use, uh, to sue teachers and schools who teach curriculum that makes children feel discomfort. We don't like to talk about difficult things, so we try to escape. And that's why we're the most medicated, the most obese nation, that drives the biggest cars, and the, has the biggest homes with multiple TVs and freezers. We try to insulate ourselves from discomfort and death. But what if we began to recognize and accept all these things as under God's sovereign control? God indeed is doing something with them for eternity. That's why Kohelet says, consider this, consider this. It shows up twice in these verses. Consider means pay attention. Pay attention to where God is at work. We want to focus on what humans can do, what humans have done, their successes, and what humans have broken and failed at. We will be tempted to try and fix things on our terms or escape from dealing with them. But consider is an invitation to pay attention to God and God's work around you. Take the crooked things you see 
and set them in God's presence. That's why he can say, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God is involved in times that are good and bad. Most of all, consider means pay attention to the ultimate demonstration of God's work in history. David the psalmist and Kohelet the wise one in Ecclesiastes both pointed to their hope in God's work in the future. But we have something they don't have. There is an ultimate invitation given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If we respond to this ultimate invitation, we find that we join into Jesus' storyline that goes to the end of history. We find that God has last word on our pain, but God also has the last word on our joy. Behind every pain in this life, God is letting nothing and no one separate us from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have responded to this invitation of God. Do you believe that this invitation is the ultimate one? More than the invitation of death and more than the invitation of escape? Because that's the way of Jesus' followers. Last fall, Julie and I had a chance to watch a live taping of my favorite, one of my favorite comedians, Stephen Colbert. As I learned more about Stephen Colbert's life, he appears to live out his Catholic faith with incredible depth and sincerity. In an interview with GQ magazine, the writer is trying to understand why someone like Stephen, who has experienced such incredible pain and loss in his life, is able to be successful at what he does. You may not know this, but, but growing up, Stephen was the youngest of 11 children. At the age of 10, Stephen lost his father and two closest brothers in a plane crash. Spending most of his childhood alone with his mother, he came to see how his sorrow was inseparable from his joy. And he saw that in the way that his mother lived her life. She saw both sorrow and joy in light of eternity, in light of where the story goes. And he credits his emotional health to, his, to how his mother lived out her faith through one of the most formative years of his life. He says of her, Imagine being a parent so filled with your own pain and yet still being able to pass that on to your son. It was a very healthy, reciprocal acceptance of suffering. Mourning. She didn't run from it. For him, though he had to confront the deaths of his father and two closest brothers at the most formative ages, he is able to say now, I love the thing that I wish, most wish had not happened. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. How many of us can say the same things, same thing towards those parts of our lives that we wish would not have happened? Though confronted with death in a very acute way, it seems that Colbert escaped escapism, at least as it relates to this event. In fact, he can even say that he's learned to love the thing that he wished most had not happened. When we confront the reality of death, don't run. 
Don't run to wielding your power or in anger. Don't run to nostalgia. Don't try and escape. Let death speak its wisdom to us now. And most of all, consider what God has done. Consider what God will do. In Christ, we have this ultimate invitation to escape death's grip on us. And in Christ, we have the ultimate invitation to escape escapism. May you find great comfort in God as you do so. Amen.